This is Wealth Wake Up with Dick Donahue on KGMI News Talk 790, 96.5 FM in Bellingham and KGMI.com. Welcome to Wealth Wake Up Live. Dick Donahue with you this Saturday morning live and here in studio. And we are going to start out with our weekly wrap. And we saw that market participants entered this week with news that the Israel declared war on Hamas after a surprise attack launched by Hamas last weekend. The potential for a wider regional clash weighed on the sentiment this week. But reports so far give the impression that the Israel-Hamas war is still a two-party conflict. Geopolitical angst mounted on Friday following news that Israel warned 1.1 million residents in the northern Gaza Strip to evacuate within 24 hours, which is presumably a pretense to a ground attack in Gaza that is going to escalate the war. That created some nervousness in the market, which also heard Iran's foreign minister say that Israel's continued siege of Gaza will face reactions in other areas. The stock market still fared okay this week aided by a decline in treasury yields and some technical buying interest related to the idea that the market is oversold and due for a bounce. Gains were registered in the first half of the week, but buyer conviction fell by the wayside as it got closer to the weekend. While this week's producer price index and consumer price index reports were not as friendly as investors envisioned, the 10-year note still did well with the help of safe haven flows and expectations that inflation rates will improve in coming months, as higher rates work in slowing the economy. The two-year note yield fell one basis point to 5.05%, but the 10-year note declined 15 basis points to 4.63%. The Treasury market also weathered some relatively disappointing auction results this week for the three-year note, the 10-year note, and the 30-year bond. Each is mid-met with relatively soft demand, which came in ahead of Thursday following a 30-year bond auction, prompting a noticeably, uh, noticeably back, up, uh, back up in rates. When geopolitical angst picked up on Friday, however, a rush to safe haven flows repaired a lot of the weakness following Thursday's sell-off. I'm going to talk a little bit more about the situation the Fed has put itself in here a little bit later in today's shows. I think you'll find it very interesting. We also found that Treasuries were also digesting comments from several Fed officials this week who spoke to the idea that the rise in long-term rates had tightened financial conditions and may give them leeway to proceed carefully in the policy rate. Oil prices climbed this week in another manifestation of geopolitical worries. The West Texas Intermediate Crude Oil Futures jumped 6% to $87.80 a barrel. Eight of the S&P 500 sectors registered a gain, with energy up 4.5%, leading by a wide margin. The consumer discretionary sector was down 7 tenths of 1%, and that saw the largest decline. Earnings season kicked off this week with generally good results, highlighted by J.P. Morgan, Wells Fargo, Citigroup, and United Health. In other news, the House failed to elect a speaker this week. Representative Steve Calise prevailed in the GOP conference vote, but withdrew his name after failing to get enough support. This leadership void is a reminder that the House can't conduct business, which raises the uncertainty about Congress reaching a budget agreement before the November 17th deadline. So here are some of the summaries of this week's action. On Monday, the market opened on a lower note as investors react to the news that Israel declared war on Hamas after a surprise attack launched by Hamas over the weekend. Stocks rallied in the afternoon trade, however, to finish the session near the highs of the day, although on light volume that reflected um, the uncertainty associated with the Israeli war. Some flight to safety action seen in Treasury futures, which traded on Monday while the Treasury Department is closed on for Columbus Day, was cited as a catalyst for the afternoon rally. Other support factors included the dollar giving back its early gains and the stock market's overall resilience to selling efforts. That resilience likely triggered some short covering activity and invited additional buying on the belief that stocks are due for a bounce from an oversold condition. 
Oil prices traded higher in response to the Israeli-Hamas conflict, which some fear could turn into a wider regional conflict. On Tuesday, the stock market closed with gains bolstered by lower market rates, lower oil prices, and a weaker dollar. Those factors rose to the forefront in the absence of worst-case scenarios unfolding in the Israeli-Hamas conflict. The major indices spent most of the morning rising steadily but dipped their highs around 1 o'clock p.m. Eastern time. That move coincided with Apple and Microsoft taking a turn lower and a $46 billion three-year note auction that was met with some relatively soft demand. The two-year note yield settled seven basis points lower at 4.99%. 10-year note fell 10 basis points to 4.66. These moves were partially a safe haven bid related to the Israeli-Hamas conflict, but they were also fueled by a technical rebound from an oversold position. Gains in the Treasury market were also supported by assumptions that the jump in long-term rates has effectively tightened financial conditions enough to leave the Fed inclined to keep its policy rate on hold at its October 31st and November 1st FOMC meeting. Many stocks participated in Tuesday's rally, as evidenced by an eight-tenths of 1% gain in the S&P 500 equal weight, and the market cap-weighted S&P closed with a half a percent gain. Tuesday's economic data featured the, S- the September NFIB Business Optimism Survey, which fell to 90.8 from 91.3 in August, and the August Wholesale Inventories Report, which reflected a tenth of 1% decline following a resized three-tenths of 1% decline in July. And on Wednesday, we saw the stock market started and finished the session on a positive note. About 1.45 p.m. Eastern Time, however, the three major indices were all in negative territory before bouncing off their lows. The S&P 500 and NASDAQ closed near the best levels of the day, bolstered by their mega-cap counterparts. Uh, uh, Notably, stocks were moving lower mid-morning despite a drop in long-term rates, which had been supportive of the stocks of late. Ten-year note declined seven basis points to 459. Two-year rose one to 5% even. Some participants attributed the downside moves to lingering nervousness related to reports that Iran-backed Hezbollah might uh, made some provocative moves in the north. Israel, however, said those reports were a false alarm, according to Bloomberg. There were uh, factors cited as possible uh, catalysts for the mid-morning slide were <clears throat> ahead of the uh, 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 September Consumer Price Index report following the, uh, the harder-than-expected producer price index and tax-related selling in front of the October 16th deadline. Many stocks recovered in the afternoon trade, riding the coattails of the mega-cap stocks. The mega-cap growth uh, ended up at nine-tenths of one percent higher, after being up just a tenth of its uh, a tenth of one percent at its worst level. The S and P equal weight had been down a half percent as low, but also finished up two tenths. So, reviewing Tuesday's, Wednesday's economic data, the weekly MBA mortgage uh, applications index rose six tenths of one percent, following last week's six percent decline. The producer price index for September was up a half a percent month over month, uh, following a seven-tenths of one percent increase in August. The producer price index, uh, excluding food and energy, rose three-tenths of one percent month over month. That followed a two-tenths of one percent increase in August. On a year-over-year basis, the PPI was up 2.2 percent versus 1.6 in August, and the course PPI was up 2.7 versus 2.2 in August. The key takeaway from this report is that it marked an interruption in the disinflation seen in producer prices, which will keep market participants worried about pass-through effects in the consumer price and rates staying higher for longer because of inflation is staying higher for longer than the Fed would like. Dick Donahue with you with Wealth Wake Up Live. Now is the time to upgrade your mattress and save big during DeWarden Bodie's 77th anniversary sale. DeWarden Bodie stocks the largest inventory of mattresses from Tempur-Pedic, Stearns & Foster, and Sealy in Whatcom County. Right now, get the mattress of your dreams with absolutely no money down and no interest for up to four years on select purchases. Score deep discounts on floor models and close-out mattress savings up to 50% off. Plus, pillows, sheets, boxes, and bases are all on sale. Take in-stock mattresses home with you today 
day or have their delivery professionals deliver, set up, and even haul away and recycle your old mattress for you. DeWard & Bodie will price match any local competitor on in-stock mattresses, which means they guarantee the lowest price available. That's why Whatcom, Skagit, and Island County residents get their mattresses at DeWard & Bodie. For 77 years, they've had the best prices, best selection, and best service. Shop DeWard & Bodie's 77th anniversary savings at the Bellingham Mattress Showroom on Meridian next to Home Depot. Financing OAC offer qualifications apply. KGMI invites you on an adventure to explore the Americana that is Boston and Cape Cod with Deanna Harrelluck on KGMI's Cape Cod and the Islands Tour. Next June 1st through the 7th with Bel Air Tours and Adventures. Discover the history of Boston. Explore Cape Cod National Seashore. Enjoy a traditional New England lobster dinner and much more. See how you can be part of this unique experience at a Cape Cod and the Islands Info Night, October 25th in Bellingham or October 26th in Linden. Get details at KGMI.com. KGMI Connects with Joe Tian is about our community and you. I happen to believe that the Bellingham, Whatcom County, uh, the Fraser River Delta, Nooksack, is an enormous healing area. Each weekday at 4 p.m. I'm the old dog. When I walk down railroads, I'm the one who knows who just got here and who didn't. I see them, they're so angry from where they came from, and then through the years, they mellow out because there's a healing energy here. On KGMI 790, 96.5 FM, and KGMI.com. The opinions expressed on this program are not necessarily those of KGMI or the Cascade Radio Group. If tomorrow all the things were gone, I'd work for all my life. And I had to start again with just my children and my wife. Welcome back to Wealth Wake Up Live. Dick Donahue with you this Saturday morning here at KGMI in studio. And we are Asset Advisors. We are located out on the Pacific Highway. That's old Highway 99 parallel to I-5 out north of the Slater Road on your right. And we're in the Pacific Commerce Center next to Wilson's Furniture. Our address is 5060 Pacific Highway, Suite 101, Ferndale, 98248. Our phone number, 360-733-1200. Well, continuing on with this week's economic news, we're going to talk about Thursday, the stock market closed with losses, rising market rates in response to the morning's data, some relatively disappointing bond action data led to an underlying negative bias throughout the session. Early strength from the mega cap space, though, had the S&P 500, the NASDAQ composite, and the Dow Jones Industrial Average all trading up three-tenths of one percent, four-tenths and two-tenths of one percent, respectively, at their highs of the day. Some mega caps rolled over as another wave of selling hit the Treasury market, coinciding with the comp- completion of Thursday's $20 billion 30-year bond auction, which met dismal, dismal demand. The two-year note yield, which hit 4.97% in front of the CPI data, rose six basis points to 5.06%. The 10-year note yield, which hit 4.53% in front of the CPI data, climbed 12 basis points to 4.71%. There's also lingering geopolitical uncertainty hanging over the market, along with the strengthening dollar, the U.S. dollar index rose 6 seven-tenths of 1% to 106.58. And the market cap-weighted S&P 500 fell six-tenths of 1%. The equal weight was also down 1.3. So reviewing Thursday's economic data, we saw that total CPI increased four-tenths of 1% month-over-month in September, and core CPI, which excludes food and energy, rose three-tenths. More than half of the increase in total CPI was driven by a six-tenths of 1% increase in the index for shelter. On a year-over-year basis, total CPI has unchanged at 3.7, while core CPI dropped to 4.1 from 4.3 for the, four, or for the 12 months ending in August. So the key takeaway from this report is that the headline numbers belie some otherwise encouraging inflation readings beyond, below the surface. To wit, the all-index uh, items less shelter was up 2% year over year and services index less shelter um, or less rent of shelter was up 2.8% year over year. We also saw that initial jobless claims for the week ending October 7th were unchanged at 209,000. Continuing claims for the week ending September 30th increased by 30,000 to 1.702 million. So the key takeaway from this report is that the low level of initial claims, a leading indicator that remains consistent with a tight labor market, continues to work in the economy's favor. On Friday, the major indices 
finished the day mixed, but the complexion under the surface was more negative than the broader market. Relatively weak, relative weakness in the mega cap space had disproportionate impact on the S&P 500 and the NASDAQ composite. Many stocks registered declines. Geopolitical uncertainty weighed on sentiment ahead of the weekend following the news that Israel wanted, warned 1.1 million residents in the northern Gaza Strip to evacuate within 24 hours. At the same time, Iran's foreign ministers noted that Israel's continued siege of Gaza will face reactions in other areas. That news fueled some safe haven buying on treasuries, but rates moved off their lows after the preliminary University of Michigan Consumer Sentiment Survey showed a pickup of the year ahead of inflation expectations of 3.8% from 3.2% and long-run inflation expectations at 3% up from 28 The geopolitical angst offset was some otherwise good news in the earnings front. Dow component at United Health, J.P. Morgan were standout winners along with Wells Fargo following their better-than-expected earnings and their guidance. So reviewing Friday's economic data, we see that the September export prices were up 7 tenths of 1%. The prior was revised to 1.1 from 1.3. September's export prices at takeout egg was up 1%. September's import prices were up one-tenth of 1%. September's import price, if you take out oil, was down two-tenths of 1%. And October's University of Michigan Consumer Sentiment had a preliminary reading of 63. A month ago, it was 68.1. So the key takeaway from these reports is that the high prices and inflation expectations were the primary weight on consumer sentiment. Now that they translate into actual spending remains to be seen, but consumers' perspective on inflation is a reason why the Fed is going to stay with higher rates for longer. So as of yesterday, the Dow Jones Industrial Average is now up 1.6% for the year. The NASDAQ, however, is up 28.1, the S&P 500 up 12.7, and your Russell 2000 is down 2.4%. Taking a look at our high-frequency data that we follow every week, as I mentioned a minute ago, initial claims, uh, jobless claims were at 209,000 for the week ending October 6th, which was unchanged. Continuing claims as of September 9th, 1,702,000. That was actually an increase of 2.3%. We also saw box office receipts for the week of October 12th down another 17% again. Rail car traffic as of October 6th was down two-tenths of 1%. Steel production as of October 9th was down 1.4%. Hotel occupancy as of the week ending October 7th was at 67.3%. That was actually up about 1.6%. TSA checkpoint data as of October 12th, 2 million. 524,600 passengers a day went through the TSA checkpoints. That was up 5.5% week over week. We saw the supply of motor gasoline as of October 6th uh, was was up 7.1%. And we saw global commercial flights as of October 12th, 126,573 a day. That was down 1.1% week over week. Well, I said a minute ago that I was going to talk a little bit about uh, what's going on at the Fed. And um, we're seeing that there's a lot of financial challenges that are facing the Federal Reserve. If you go back to 2008, the Federal Reserve embarked on what, what they called a novel experiment in monetary policy by transitioning from what we called a scarce reserve system to one characterized by abundant reserves. In addition to inflation, This experiment has resulted in some other developments that are also worrisome. Higher interest rates have resulted in substantial unrealized losses on the Fed's securities portfolio. Simultaneously, this has caused the Fed to pay out more in interest to banks than is earning, resulting in sizable ongoing losses. To offer deeper insight into this, we're going to take a look at some of these things. First, we're going to talk about net earnings and remittance to the Treasuries. Before 2022, the Fed was able to buy Treasury and mortgage-backed securities that generated higher yields than what they were paying the banks. Consequently, the Fed consistently earned substantial operating surpluses that were remitted to the U.S. Treasury for on a weekly basis. Over a span of 15 years, the Federal Reserve contributed an average of over $75 billion annually to government revenue through this mechanism. Excuse <coughs> me. But now, after the equivalent of 21 quarter point rate hikes in a year and a half, it pays banks 5.54% per annum to hold reserves. 
That is much more than it's earning on its portfolio of treasury bonds and mortgage-backed securities, leading to a $58.1 billion loss over the first half of this year. These accumulated losses are called a deferred asset on the Fed's balance sheet and only be paid off when the Fed starts to make a profit again down the road. So let's also talk about the breakdown in some of the um, portfolio holdings. The Federal Reserve has $1 trillion in unrealized losses on its balance sheet. It's important to note that the unique position it's in. Unlike many financial institutions, the Fed doesn't face solvency concerns because it's not required to market its portfolio to market values. The Fed has the option to hold its securities until they mature. And there's no regulatory agency that can intervene and force it to shut down due to accounting losses. With total reported capital of just $42 billion in the first, second quarter of 23, the Fed's unrealized loss of $1 trillion represents a staggering 24 times its capital. And let's talk about what interest debate the banks and institutions by the Federal Reserve. The Fed is set up to pay other institutions close to $300 billion this year at current interest rates or just hold reserves, money that ultimately comes from taxpayers. So far, though just the first half of this calendar year, banks and other institutions have already received $141.8 billion in risk-free income, more than the $102.3 billion that they received in all of 2022. Got to keep in mind, they're talking about them selling off some of those bonds in weak demand. They have somewhere, I don't know, $7, 8000000000000 trillion that they're holding on their balance sheet right now that one of these days they're going to have to peel off. I describe this as having a bucket. You got a bucket. You got different types of assets in that bucket. You got stocks. You got bonds. You got real estate. You got commodities. Well, when it gets all done, that money that the Fed's got has to go out and take place on one of those other commodities. So it's going to be interesting to see where this one runs. Dick Donahue with you with Wealth Wake Up Live here in KGMI. We'll be back shortly. How do we earn our reputation for repairs you can trust? Great mechanics? Yeah. Quality parts? Absolutely. But the real secret is knowing the most important part of every vehicle is the driver. And here's your keys. She's already Right on time. Thanks. With over 30 years of service, you can trust Bellingham Automotive to help you with any regular maintenance needs or unexpected repairs. Schedule your appointment at 360-676-5200 or visit BellinghamAutomotive.com. At Puget Sound Energy, we're proudly aspiring to reduce our own emissions to net zero and to go beyond by helping others reduce carbon across Washington. Together, we're investing in local renewables, strengthening the electric grid, helping customers switch to electric vehicles, innovating with low-carbon resources, supporting our communities, and saving energy along the way. Together, we're creating a clean energy future. This week with PNW Perks, you can enjoy Bellingham Cider Company for half the price. You might know them for their delicious variety of cider flavors like their spiced pumpkin, caramel apple, and other seasonal flavors. But you'll also be amazed by their menu, proudly sourcing their fresh food from local farms and businesses. Enjoy their in-house made ravioli, guajillo braised beef, or delicata squash salad. They're well known for their buttermilk brine chicken and waffles, but you'll also find juicy burgers made from northwest raised beef. Or how about fresh coho salmon? with roasted tomato chutney. You'll be amazed at the variety, selection, and flavors from the kitchen. Dietary restrictions? No problem. Their menu provides a host of vegan, vegetarian, gluten-free, and dairy-free options. Bellingham Cider Company, the place great ciders meet exceptional food with breathtaking views everyone can enjoy. Find them at 5 Prospect or at BellinghamCider.com. This Thursday at 8 a.m., get a $50 gift certificate to Bellingham Cider Company for just $25, only at pnwperks.com. There's a lot going on right now, and broadcasters are on the ground covering all of it, bringing you the weather, the traffic, and breaking news, all while entertaining you 24 hours a day. Someone needs to tell you what's going on around the world and in our hometowns. And that someone is us. We are free radio. We are always there. We are broadcasters. Visit wearebroadcasters.com or text radio to 52886 to learn more. Furnished by NAB and this station. 
The latest local news and important topics of the day from the West Mechanical Studio. Tired of inefficient heating, poor indoor air quality, and rising energy bills? Contact West Mechanical today to explore going ductless with a system from Mitsubishi Electric Heating and Air Conditioning. Find them at westmechanical.net. Get the latest news and information 24-7 with KGMI News Talk 790, 96.5 FM in Bellingham and KGMI.com. CBS News Special Report. People living in Gaza are already feeling the effects of Israel's complete food and fuel blockade. I went outside today to buy my my family some bread, and I wasn't able to do so. Secretary of State Antony Blinken says whatever happens between Israel and the Hamas-ruled Gaza Strip, the innocent must be shielded. As Israel pursues its legitimate right to defending its people and to trying to assure that this never happens again, It is vitally important that all of us look out for civilians, and we're working together to do exactly that. As Israel prepares for a possible ground invasion of Gaza, the State Department is said to be working with hundreds of Americans now in the enclave, says CBS's Christina Ruffini. State Department officials say they are working to negotiate safe passage for those Americans wishing to leave Gaza by working out a temporary opening of the border with Egypt. There's an estimated about 500 to 600 Palestinian Americans in Gaza, many of whom are already in with U.S. officials. CBS News Special Report. And I'm proud to be an American where at least I know I'm free And I won't forget the men who died who gave that right to me And I gladly stand up Welcome back to Wealth Wake Up Live. Dick Donahue with you this Saturday morning. Well, we're going to talk a little bit about the S&P 500 index and what's taking place with stock buybacks. We're finding that companies have a number of ways which they can return capital to their shareholders. They can do this with cash dividends. They can do it with stock buybacks, which have been two of the more popular methods that corporations have utilized in recent years. Apart from the third quarter of 22 and the second quarter this year, dividend distributions have steadily increased over this period of time. The comparison, share buybacks remain well below their peak of the first quarter of 22. Even so, buybacks still uh, were still a more a significant source of overall capital distributions than dividend distributions. Total shareholders' return on dividends and buybacks stood at $1.389 trillion over the trailing 12-month period that ended in June of this year. In total, the companies and the composite uh, that, that comprised the S&P 500 index distributed a total of $576.4 billion in dividends over a trailing 12-month period ending in June, up from $542.1 billion over the same period last year. Dividend distribution increased on a quarterly basis. Despite the downward trend revealed in the most recent data, annual share repurchases stood at a record $922.7 billion for the 22 calendar year. Buybacks totaled $812.5 billion over the 12 months ending in June, down from $1.05 trillion over the 12-month ending in June of 22. Quarterly stock buybacks totaled $1.749 billion in the third, second quarter of 23. That was down from $215.5 billion in the first quarter of last year. So year-to-date through the second quarter of this year, the S&P 500 index sectors that were most aggressive in repurchasing their stock were, uh, which basically based on a percentage of all the stocks repurchased, first of all, information technology repurchased 27%, financials 18.7%, uh, communication services up for, uh, 14 and a half, and that's according to the S&P Dow Jones indices. So what's our takeaway from this? Well, both dividend distributions and stock buybacks declined in the second quarter of 23. That said, total dividend distribution stood at a record $576.4 billion over the trailing 12 months ended in June. For comparison, stock buybacks stood at $812.5 billion over the same period, down from record $1.05 trillion over the 25 months of June of last year. Stock buybacks fell by 18.8% on a quarter-over-quarter basis in the second quarter of 23. Healthcare and real estate stock repurchases falling by 42.2% and 86.5% respectively over that quarter. Dividend distributions remain relatively consistent over the time frame in our view, this is to be expected. Generally, companies tend to avoid cutting their dividend 
as the action can be seen as an indication of financial weakness. I've talked about this a couple of times, but I keep getting more information. This comes from the Washington Policy Center, talking about the latest letter from the Washington Department of Ecology, once again contradicts what their previous claims were on the climate tax that we're seeing right now. And as it's become the story, they call themselves policymakers, but they aren't focused on basically very well on serving the public. After everything that has occurred in the last year, the state administration and ecology staff still claim that we continue to believe that the projections in the final regulatory analysis represent the best available understanding of the impacts of the climate law. Well, the spin has changed repeatedly. Since January 1st, they denied prices would go up much, if at all. Next, they claimed the price increases due to world events, then claiming it was the tax that was increasing prices, but oil company greed, and that stopped at Washington's borders, and now claiming that the price increase really isn't that much, and in the long run, it'll, it'll still be okay. They hope that people will grow tired of the story, how many times they can write about it in the latest denial and responsibility of the impact of policy is literally designed to increase prices. You know, I'd rather much like talk about ch- changing policy so it uh, reduces CO2 emissions without doing serious harm to the economy. The Inslee administration seems to see, still sees denial as the best political strategy. So as long as we continue with this dishonesty driving the discussion about Washington's climate law, we're going to keep uh, talking about it. Hopefully in the near future, accountability from the public and the media will encourage the administration to address the policy rather than play politics. Staff at the Department of Ecology have again changed their story on the impact of the state's CO2 emissions. Even as Washington State Utilities Commission admits that the state climate policy, known as the Climate Commitment Act, or CCA, is increasing natural gas prices, the governor, his press secretary, and staff of the Department of Ecology continue to distract and mislead the public on the consequences of their policy. There was a letter from the ecology director, Laura Watson, demonstrates how Inslee administration is intensely misleading, intentionally misleading legislators and the public about the cost of this program. Last year, Senator, uh, State Senator Shelley Short asked the Department of Ecology staff to estimate the impact of the law on new CO2 emissions, natural gas, and electricity. One year later, she asked the ecology staff if they stood by their estimates in the previous letter. The response, was deci- the response signed by Watson is, was evasive and revealing. There was a contradiction in the CO2 price. For example, two ecology let- uh, letters directly contradict each other on the estimated price of CO2 allowances. In the, in the, uh, uh, in the original 2022 letter, uh, Ecology's air program manager estimated average price of allowances would be about $41 per metric ton calling this the most credible and likely number to be forecast. They also saw the 2023 letter now takes a dare different tone. Ignoring the claim in the first letter, they note that the economic modeling looked at three scenarios, saying that price range from a high of 68 to a low of approximately $41, with a mid-range of 58 So they went on to say that the rulemaking by the carbon tax used but it was estimated at $58.31. They said that was the most credible in 22 because just one estimate, estimate ecology staff considered the 2023, but now they're now acknowledging that ecology's initial policy had been uh, much lower, that $41 and light, most likely uh, that has turned out to be badly un- incorrect. In the last auction of allowances, the price was $63.03, which is 50% higher than their 2022 estimate. We're also seeing a shifting story on on gas prices. 2023 plays similar games. Uh, They they estimated in 22 that the cap would increase uh, rate of fuel by about 1% to 3%. That projection was always suspect. They neglected to mention the 1.3% range original estimates in the period of tw- tw- was for a period of time covering from 2030 to 2050. It did not cover 2023, which is what um, um, we're talking about now. Ironically, uh, uh, Ecology's own webpage currently says something different. The economic impacts of Washington climate policy section 
the college staff says we expect overall economic impact of the cap and invest program to be one to three percent but the director and the agency staff can't seem to get on the same page additionally instead of the standard approach of calculating the impact of taxes on product by adding them to the price it is done with calculating the impact on sales the analysis the analysis ran the impact through an economic model it is needlessly complex it's inaccurate way to calculate the impact. By way of a contrast ecology's analysis, the price impact on the low-carbon fuel standard applies the cost of co- compliance directly to the price of gasoline. That was the approach favored by California and other energy analysts. Their letters go on to admit that the impact has been much greater than the 1 to 3 percent. It translates into 5 cents a gallon. They write that they, between January 1st and August 31st, this year average retail price of gas rose by about $1.27 a gallon, according to AAA data. This is significantly higher than the ecology's initial estimate. By way of comparison, Oregon prices rose by $1.03. So, uh, so we had $0.24 cents more per gallon in Washington. The numbers appear to be off also because it, uh, it, they said it's a typo, but gas price in Washington State rose by $1.37, according to AAA and GasBuddy data. That means prices have increased by about 34 cents a gallon more than in Oregon. Their letter also states that a large majority of the increase in Washington gas prices in 2023 cannot be attributed to the carbon and, and cap invest program. Um, and then they only said that the public doesn't care whether the tax on COT accounts for all or some of the gas price increases. The question is how much impact the tax itself is having. Anyway, they also went on to misrepresent what's happening in natural gas. Uh, they claim that increasing taxes would increase the price of natural gas by about 1%. In a new letter, they also now uh, continue to claim that tax will lead to a decrease in natural gas by 1.56% through 2030. But once again, the previous letter claimed that it would occur in 2023. And they're acknowledging now that the, uh, uh, they still claim that natural gas prices will decline over time. Anyway, their staff clearly recognizes the 2022 letter and projections did not age well. And during the last year, and economic projections have been released and the costs of state's climate policy have become apparent. Statements from ecology staff have been consistently inaccurate, misleading, and not really reflecting what's really happening in the price of gas or the price of natural gas. I come back, I'm going to spend a little time here talking about uh, a Citizens Initiative uh, 1 and a Citizens Initiative 2 that you're going to be having to vote on in this fall's election. Dick Donahue with you with Wealth Wake Up Live. We'll be back shortly. Extra, extra, read all about it. If you're craving great tasting food and local brews in an atmosphere that's making headline news, look no further than the Newsroom Pub. Lunch or dinner, it's always a top story when you visit the Newsroom Pub. Their locally sourced menu will delight with offerings of Dutch delicacies, uniquely battered fish and chips, salads, hot press sandwiches, and many other pub favorites. Plus, always making the front page are their incredibly delicious smash burgers, a must try. The Newsroom's drinks are local as well, featuring craft beers, wines, and ciders. Also, the bar offers a variety of house cocktails and custom-made hard drinks. The pub's interior was designed and built to preserve much of the historic charm of the old Linden Tribune. Dine in or out in the covered patio. Finish off your meal with an official red raspberry sundae or some ice cream from their Daily Scoop ice cream shop. It's a headline trifecta with good brews, good food, and good news always at the Newsroom Pub. Visit them today in beautiful downtown Linden next to the mural or online at thenewsroompub.com. Dedicated to service, shining a light on local individuals, law enforcement, and groups giving back to our community. Brought to you by Niederhaus of Luxury in Bellingham. Dedicated to service congratulates Allied Arts of Whatcom County upon their selection this year for the Community Impact Award. Allied Arts of Whatcom County is one of nine honorees of the 2023 Governor's Arts and Heritage Awards, the highest honor bestowed by the Governor's Office for accomplishments in arts and culture. Active since 1979, the staff and volunteers of Allied Arts of Whatcom County empower artists via events and gallery space, enrich school children through education outreach, and work as local liaisons to art and enthusiasts of all ages. Congratulations to all and thank you for your service to our community. Dedicated to Service is brought to you by Neater House of Luxury with Bellingham's finest selection of jewelry including GIA certified diamonds and lab grown diamonds and custom design. Neater House of Luxury, 21 Bellwether Way, Suite 107, next to Lombardi's Back Patio. 
Cause there ain't no doubt I love this land God bless the USA Welcome back to Wealth Wake Up Live. Dick Donnie here with you this Saturday morning. And as always, if you got questions for me, you can always give me a call. 360-733-1200. I'm going to start out first here talking about the Citizen's Guide to Initiative 1 which is to increase the minimum wage and also will probably limit job opportunities for Bellingham workers. Let's talk about an introduction to this. In November, the voters in the city of Bellingham will consider ballot initiative one, which if passed would require all employers to pay a dollar more per hour than the state minimum wage, increasing to $2 or more in 2025. So a dollar more than 24, $2 more in 25. The measure would also cover people who work at home. The requirements imposed on employees and employers by Initiative 1 would cost both of them more, uh, more money, probably also destroy jobs and create an, un- an uncompetitive job market in Bellingham, which should, would also slow, e- slow economic growth in the region. It also may deny earnings opportunities to those who are seeking jobs and want to work, especially low-skilled and lower-income workers. So some of the key findings in this uh, study that was done, they found that Bellingham Initiative 1 would increase costs and reduce available hours for employees to work. Two, they found that some businesses would likely be forced to close or relocate outside of the Bellingham city limits in order to avoid the increase in minimum wage. Three, they said it will cause harm by Initiative 1, which would fall hardest on low-income workers and on the most vulnerable families in the community. And four, the requirements placed on the employees and employers by Initiative 1 would cost both the employees and employers more money, destroy jobs, create an uncompetitive job market in Bellingham that also would slow economic growth in the region. Then we also had the Citizen's Guide to Initiative 2, which wants to impose rent increase limits on Bellingham. And basically, in 2021 general election, a group called People First Bellingham placed an initiative on the Bellingham ballot modeled after a renter relocation assistance law that was passed in Portland in 2017. The 21 measure would have required a landlord to pay relocation fees to tenants if the landlord raised rent more than 8% in a rolling 12-month period. Much of the language in the Portland law was copied verbatim into the Bellingham initiative except the Bellingham measure would have set the the fee for three months market rate uh, uh, payments, while the uh, Portland law uses fixed and typically lower fee based on the number of units, bedrooms, and uh, of a number of uh, units, bedrooms. The 2021 Bellingham proposal was defeated by voters. People's First Bellingham included representatives from other organizations such as Wacom Democratic Socialists of America, Bellingham Tenants Union, and since 2021, it changed its name to Community First Wacom and placed Initiative 2 on the 23 ballot. Uh, this initiative is nearly identical to the failed 21 measure, which slight changes, which mostly increase the negative impact on the housing market. So again, now looking at the key findings of this report, we find that Initiative 2 is a rent control measure that would impose a harsh penalty on landlord who raised rent above a fixed 8% annual threshold. The initiative could reduce the supply of affordable housing by discouraging builders from creating or maintaining rental units. Three, Initiative 2 is a near-carbon copy of the Portland rent control measure passed in 2017 that has increased housing unaffordability. And four, negative results in the Portland measure show that Bellingham should expect a double-digit percentage decline in available units if rent control is imposed. Five, initiative sponsors claim of success in other cities, while similar initiatives are demonstrably false. Six, the experience of other cities shows rent control increases housing, uh, increases housing affor- and affordability, forces falls hardest on low-income renters, and increases homelessness. And seven, Initiative 2 does nothing to address the root causes of housing unaffordability in Bellingham. From another source I was talking to the other day, they indicated that many of the Local landlords have actually dumped or quit or sold off many of their properties, rental properties, to out-of-town buyers, partly because of some of these measures. So it'll be interesting to see where all this heads. And while we're talking about all these nice things about real estate, we also saw that um, the U.S. mortgage rate climbed to a fresh multiple 
multi-decade high of 7.67%. The rates, in this was as of last week, this is the highest since 2000, keeping a lid on home buying activity. The contract rate on a 30-year fixed mortgage rose by 14 basis points. That would be 0.14% to 7.67% in the week ended October 6th, according to the Mortgage Bankers Association data on Wednesday. That marked the fifth straight weekly increase. The index of home purchase applications inched up, though remains near its lowest level in almost three decades. The overall measure of mortgage applications, which includes refinancing activity, also edged higher. Mortgage rates tend to move in tandem with the 10-year Treasury yields, which last week hit its highest since 2007. U.S. yields have since retreated on expectations that the Federal Reserve is likely done raising rates. With mortgage rates so high, many homeowners are hesitant to move. After lock, looking, uh, in, low, locking in lower borrowing costs in the past, that's taking a toll on supply and keeping prices elevated, while builders are offering prospective buyers financial incentives to purchase new houses, existing home sales remain depressed. Earlier this week, the Mortgage Bankers Association and two other housing industry groups sent a letter to the Fed Chair Jerome Powell urging central bankers to steer away from further interest rate hikes. The Mortgage Bankers Association survey, which is conducted weekly since 1990, uses responses from mortgage bankers, commercial banks, and thrifts. The data cover more than 75% of all residential mortgage applications in the U.S. And got another report while we're talking about housing. And uh, basically, brick by brick, we have a multi-year dearth of new home construction and owners' reluctance to move because of the high mortgage rates, which I mentioned a minute ago. That has driven the supply of mortgage, uh, supply of shortage of homes in the U.S. They believe that this supply and imbalance may set up the interesting opportunity for long-term investors. Basically, looking at this chart in front of me, we find that in two, since 2008, uh, the financial crisis, um, the U.S. home sales as a percent of total home sales um, for new sales is basically was about 9.6% of home sales back in 2008. Now it's over 14.3%. So that means in August of this year, we've seen almost a 50% increase in the number of new home sales versus used uh, existing home sales. And according to the National Association of Home Builders, the U.S. has a shortage of approximately 1.5 million housing units. After the 2008 financial crisis, the U.S. failed to build enough homes to meet household formation needs, with the majority of U.S. homeowners unwilling to move from their uh, locking after lower rates. The U.S. uh, underbuilding between 2010 and 2019, supply of homes remains structurally low. New home sales have been gaining market share as a percentage of total home sales, as a trend to believe will continue. As of August, as I mentioned a minute ago, new home sales have increased by 6% over the last year, but the existing home sales are down 15%. And in our view, publicly traded home builders not only get the potential benefit of increasing new home sales as a percent of total home sales, but also are taking larger share of the new home sales market, where they're approximately doubled their market share since 2008 financial crisis. With existing home inventory likely to remain tight, along with growing share of millennial home builders, home buyers entering the market, we believe that there is some reason to believe that long-term structural tailwinds for publicly traded U.S. home builders may be something to take a look at. So just a little thought process there to think about what's happening in housing and what's happening in housing is the fact that you are seeing an increase in a number of new home sales and a decline. We also saw this week that the uh, Social Security is going to go up, according to the Social Security Administration, next year at 3.2%. The cost of living adjustment is lower than the uh, record-setting 8.7% increase that millions of recipients received this year, reflecting a moderation in the inflation rate. The adjustment is well above, however, the 2.6% rate over the last 20 years, according to research by Nonprofit Senior Citizens League. The 3.2% COLA will be effective with benefits payable in January to more than 71 million Social Security and Supplemental SSI beneficiaries. The agency said in its press release, noting that Social Security benefits on average will be increased by about $50 a month in January. As I go on down through this report, we're finding also that it's telling us that 
home expense, home household expenses have risen about $150 a month in the last year. So 50 bucks isn't going to, uh, isn't going to help as far as getting people back to where they have their, their spending power. There was an additional study that, um, came out that basically said that the failure to adequately adjust Social Security benefits for inflation can lead to a loss of buying power and benefits over time and slower growth in Social Security benefit of income in the course of retirement. They said that research has showed that Social Security benefits have lost about 36% of their buying power since 2000. So significant drop in buying power. Look forward to that 3.2% increase next year. Probably not going to keep up with what your cost of living is doing. Unfortunate news. Dick Donahue with you with Wealth Wake Up Live here on KGMI. Again, I want to thank you for being with us. If you got questions for me, give me a call, 360-733-1200. And don't forget our show tomorrow morning at 9 o'clock. Have a great day. on the show are for general information only and are not intended to provide specific advice or recommendations for any individual. To determine which strategies or investments may be suitable for you, consult the appropriate qualified professional prior to making a decision.